please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week, in the first four verses of Nehemiah 1, we considered Nehemiah's love for the church. And we considered this reality based upon his response to the report that came to him concerning Jerusalem with its walls still in shambles, with its gates still burned down by that previous attack from the Babylonians back in 586 when Judah was carried off into captivity for their disobedience. But now captivity is over and Nehemiah is inquiring of his brother Hanani, of the state of the church, there in Judah, in Jerusalem, and we see that it is not a good picture, that the church is struggling. And so we saw Nehemiah's love for the church and the grief that he expressed over her sad condition. He sat down and wept and prayed and fasted for many days. Well, let's pick up where we left off then. As we left off considering Nehemiah's love for the church, and now we'll see in verses 5 through 11 what naturally flows from that love for the church. This is Nehemiah speaking. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them and from there, gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cup bearer. Let us pray briefly together once again. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have preserved it for us, for our benefit. We pray that we would benefit from it this evening, that you would help us to be attentive at this late hour, that you would give us the strength that we need to be diligent in our hearing, and Lord, that we would truly taste and see that you are good tonight as we partake of you and your word by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how do you know that you love something or someone? Have you ever thought about it? How you actually know that you love? 
Some people say, well, I just know. I just know that I love that person. I just know that I love that one thing. Or I feel a certain way. I have a certain set of emotions that are aroused or conjured up. Well, Scripture helps us out in two major ways in answering this kind of question. How do we know that we love someone or something? And the first, Jesus, of course, tells us is that wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. In other words, if you want to know you, if you love someone or something, do you invest in it? Do you invest your resources, your time, your attention, your money, your energy? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But a second way that we can know that we love someone or something is, do we pray for them? Or do we pray for it? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives this shocking and difficult command to his disciples. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And then he gave three ways to do this. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And so one of the ways that Jesus taught his disciples to love is by praying. It's no wonder then that we see Nehemiah's love for Jerusalem, his love for the church, as we consider it there in verses 1 through 4 of Nehemiah 1. It's no wonder that we see his love now materialize into prayer for the church. Let's look then at verses 5 through 11. And let's do so for our benefit this evening along these very same lines. That as we look at this prayer from Nehemiah, we're looking not merely at a prayer of a man, but a prayer that has been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit for our benefit, so that we too can learn how to love the church and have our love materialize for the church in praying for her. Verse 5, And I said... I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Look simply then at those first two words, I pray. After Nehemiah heard the report of the condition of Jerusalem, he knew exactly where to begin his work. And really, it's the only place to begin all effective church work. On one's knees. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Well, Nehemiah knew this reality well. He understood that unless the Lord builds the walls of Jerusalem, unless the Lord secures the gates of Jerusalem, All labor would be in vain. Even if the walls were to be built up, even if the gates were to be restored, it would still be the Lord's guardianship that would make the difference, that would provide the safety 
for the people of God there in the city of God. And so Nehemiah bends the knee to the one who can alone properly rebuild Jerusalem from its ruins. And this is the fundamental issue with prayer when we think more generally that whatever the task is at hand, whatever the request is that we are making, we pray because we understand that it's not a matter of manpower, but a matter of God power. If we could simply do it effectively, then we should just get up and do it. So that's one of the great acknowledgments that we are making every time we pray, that it is not a matter of manpower, but of God power when we fall to our knees. And so Nehemiah falls to his knees and says, I pray, understanding that it is not the work of men that needs to go forward here, but ultimately it is the work of God in rebuilding the church in Jerusalem. And this is no different for us today. It is God who still remains the builder of the church. In fact, Jesus Christ said so himself in Matthew 16, when he told Peter that upon this rock, speaking of himself, upon this rock, I will build the church. Jesus identified himself as the great church builder. And so when we think about the church today and praying for the church, praying for effective ministry in the church, praying for the church to be built up, edified, strengthened, we must realize that this is not a work that we can do as mere men and women and children, but it's a work that Christ claims for himself And therefore, it's a work that we must pray to the Lord Jesus Christ to perform. In fact, we read that very reality earlier from Ephesians chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul said that he bows his knees before the Father as he prays for the church, prays for her sure rooting and grounding in the faith and love of Jesus Christ. And if you look at your bulletins, we see Paul goes on in that same letter to the Ephesians there in Ephesians chapter 6. As he's giving his closing remarks to the saints there, he says to them, they should be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We see then that just as Nehemiah had a love for the church that materialized in prayer for the church, the same is the case with the Apostle Paul, and the same is to be the case with each one of us here today. That we are to be diligent, persevering in prayer for the saints, for the church of Jesus Christ that he builds Let's look and see then how Nehemiah prays, or more specifically, who he prays to. I pray, Lord God of heaven. We see right away that Nehemiah is certain of the one 
and only one who can answer prayer, and that's because he's the only one who hears prayer. He's the only God who is there. The one who is in heaven, or as Isaiah 66 says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist. When Nehemiah is addressing God here as the Lord God of heaven, he's bringing this very idea in that this is the God who sits enthroned in heaven. Above the earth, because he made it. He is supreme over it. And he has all authority and command over it. He is the one who has absolute power to do with it as he wills. And it is to this same God then that, teach, that Jesus would go on to teach his disciples to pray. And we get to experience every Lord's Day morning as we take the Lord's Prayer upon our lips. You ever notice those Opening lines, Our Father, which art in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this manner. And it should come as no surprise then that Nehemiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is here praying in exactly the same way. Lord God of heaven. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He continues to reflect upon the grandeur of God as he says, O great and awesome God. Oftentimes, our problems can seem so big because God can seem so small. We don't know enough about God's character and person or titles. So sometimes we feel like our prayers are futile, that the problems we face are insurmountable. But that shouldn't be the case here as we remember who the God is that we are praying to, the great and awesome God. So Nehemiah dwells upon the character of God as we ought to always do as we open our mouths in prayer to him for the church. And the longer he does, it seems that the smaller the problem becomes. One author puts it this way, the greater God becomes to him, the smaller becomes his problem. And that's a principle we can run with every time we come to God with a problem. When we come to make supplication of him. That we can put it into perspective when we realize that we are bringing it before the great and awesome God. But then notice what we see next here in verse 5. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. This kind of language is scattered throughout the Old Testament. We could even say that this kind of language is scattered throughout the New Testament as well. But in Nehemiah's day, the New Testament wasn't written yet. But one of the places that we'll find very similar language to this phrase that Nehemiah pulls into his prayer at this particular point is language that we could find embedded in the Ten Commandments. Language we can find embedded in the second commandment of Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. It 
Second commandment reads like this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's that last part that we see repeated here in Nehemiah's prayer. You who keep your mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now Nehemiah is about to recognize in the next couple of verses that the Lord has visited the iniquities of their fathers. He's going to acknowledge that. But it seems clear here that Nehemiah has never forgotten the imbalance, you could say, of what's embedded in this commandment. And by imbalance, I mean that the Lord God visits the iniquities of the third and fourth generation of those who hate him by disobeying him. But that's where we see the great imbalance. Because the second commandment, the one that God etched with his own finger upon a tablet of stone, says, but he will show mercy to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah understands the character of God as it's even presented in the Ten Commandments. That God is merciful. That God is a God who loves to show mercy. Which really serves then as the ground of the rest of his appeal in this prayer to the Lord. It is the very foundation of his prayer. And that is the covenant mercy of the Lord that he keeps to thousands. That's an important aspect of the character of God that we need to remember as we pray for the church. As we think about the church and all of her blemishes in this age, as we think about the church and all of our sins, all of our failures, if this weren't foundational, the mercy of God, if this were not foundational to his character as he's revealed himself, We would lose all motivation to pray. We would lose all motivation to come before him and make any request from him for the church. So we do well to take good note here of the foundation upon which Nehemiah places this prayer. Yes, it is to the Lord God of heaven. Yes, it is to the great and awesome God. But it is to a God who is merciful above all else. Let's look then at the sins that Nehemiah goes on to confess. Having laid the foundation of his prayer with the character of God, we see there in verse 6, Nehemiah beginning his confession of sin. But notice the buildup of this confession here. Nehemiah begins verse 6 there by requesting that God would be attentive. That the all-seeing, all-hearing God of the universe would be attentive 
to this prayer. What we need to see here then, even in this build-up, is that we are reminded once again of the absolute transcendence and majesty of the Lord God. That although he has the ability to see and to hear, Nehemiah understands that it would be absolutely presumptuous for a mere creature to assume that he has the attention of the Creator. And so Nehemiah entreats the maker of heaven and earth to hear and to see. He understands that there's so great a a distance between the creator and the creature. That he must request the attention of the Lord God. And that's important for us to remember as we pray for the church. That yes, we are encouraged time and time again, almost on every page of scripture, to be praying to God for the church. But when we come to God, we must remember his transcendence. We must remember his majesty. We must remember that although he is all-seeing and all-hearing, it is the greatest privilege in the world to have his ear open to us. It is the greatest privilege to have his eyes open to us, for him to see and to hear us as we make a request to him. And so Nehemiah entreats the maker of heaven and earth to see and to hear. But we also see that this entreaty has everything to do with the build-up towards a confession of sin. And so we are not only reminded of the great distance between the creator and creature, but we are also reminded of the separation that sin has brought. Or we could say that severance that sin has brought between the God who is holy, holy, holy and the people who have soiled themselves in unholiness. Between the all-righteous God and an unrighteous people, there is nothing in common. In fact, Habakkuk 1.13 says, Of the Lord God, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And so as Nehemiah is about to confess the evil and wickedness of the people of God, he pleads for God's eyes and ears to be open. He understands the distance between creator and creature And he understands the severance that sin has brought between a holy God and an unholy people. It is right and proper for us to have such an awareness every time we pray for the church. That God is condescending to hear us, mere creatures, as the great creator. And he is showing great mercy to look upon us. Those who have done evil and wickedness in our rebellion against him. Let's look then at the actual confession that Nehemiah puts forward. He first confesses the sins of the children of Israel. Now those are choice words once again. Nehemiah speaking of the people of God as the children of Israel. These are endearing family words to categorize the people of God. 
And so he is coming to God with the acknowledgement that God has a fatherly disposition, that God is a father, and that he's setting before him his very own children. Of course, once again, this prompts us to think about that form of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, our Father, which art in heaven. And so we do well to constantly remember the fatherly character of our heavenly Father. We see then that Nehemiah confesses the sins of the children of Israel, but not only their sins, he goes on to confess even his own sins. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah doesn't stand at an arm's length from the transgressions of the children of Israel. He acknowledges personal culpability and he acknowledges a corporate solidarity within the church. That when one part of the church sins, the whole church sins. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. There's a solidarity to this confession of sin rather than a spirit of self-righteousness. So Nehemiah confesses the sins, not only the children of Israel, but also down to his own personal sins and the sins of his own father's house. We notice too there in verse 7, as the confession continues, that Nehemiah is careful to confess the breadth and the depth of the sin and corruption of the people of God because he knows that God is merciful. And he knows that God is faithful and just to forgive confessed sins and to cleanse those sins from his people, to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from what comes next in verses 8 and 9. We see that Nehemiah is keenly aware that God is a God who keeps his word. There in verse 8, he brings up what God had commanded through Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. I will send you into exile. I will spread you among the nations. Nehemiah is acknowledging that God has been faithful to that cursing. That God has been faithful to that chastening judgment as the people of God are trying to recover in this time of exile. Nehemiah is currently located in Persia, one of the nations that God sent his people to in fulfillment of the word he spoke to Moses, that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you and send you among the nations. And so Nehemiah is keenly aware, as all of God's people should be keenly aware, especially at this point, that God doesn't mess around when he talks. That he doesn't have empty warnings or empty threats. But he made good on this one. But of course, verse 8 then is only half the story. For not only did God say that he would send his people into captivity for their unfaithfulness, but Nehemiah brings in view what God also said 
to his servant Moses that if you return to me and keep my commandments, if you return to me and pursue faithfulness, then I will gather you and I will bring you to my dwelling place, to the place where my name dwells. So Nehemiah is keenly aware that God is a God who keeps his word, just as he kept it to send his people into exile for their unfaithfulness. Nehemiah is now pleading the promise of God to restore his people to the land because of repentance. That's what we can make out of these words. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, that is repentance. Turning from unfaithfulness, turning from sin, and turning to the Lord God and to His commandments. In a spirit of renewed obedience, to walk in faithfulness to Him. And so as we consider our theme this evening of having our love for the church materialize into prayer for the church, we need to be praying for the church's faithfulness. God makes no empty threats or warnings to an unfaithful church. You can read the beginning of Revelation and you can read the warnings and threats of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. Those are not empty threats. Some of their lampstands were removed. So we need to be praying for a faithful church. But secondly, we also need to be quick to acknowledge the sins and failures of the church and pray for a spirit of repentance to be poured out. Because just as surely as God's word, words are not empty for the threats and warnings, his words are not empty for his promises <clears throat> that he will restore his people, that he will gather them to strengthen them and to bless them with his presence <clears throat> if they repent. So as we pray for the church, let us be those who are constantly praying for a spirit of repentance. For that is what God blesses, a return to him and a renewed spirit to walk in obedience before him. Well, Nehemiah goes on in his prayer there in verse 10. No, these are your servants and your people. Nehemiah is quick to remind God, if that were even possible, but to remind God of who these people really are. Yes, Nehemiah loves the church, but he doesn't own the church. He loves the church, and he's in a position of power and authority. To impact the life of the church. But he understands that ultimately these are not his people. At least not in the same way that they are God's people. As Nehemiah goes on to say. Whom you have redeemed by your great power. And by your strong hand. Nehemiah here is appealing to God's ownership. And salvation of his people. No one saves anything that's not of value to them. If a flash flood were to come through Squamish and something that was 
valueless to you or to be swept away in that flood, you wouldn't risk your life to go after it. You wouldn't lay down your life to try to save it. You would simply let it sweep on by. But when you think about God's own people, and you think about the way in which God will ultimately save all of his people, by sending his son to lay down his life for his own, we see the value that God places upon his people. And we need to have that in our minds as we pray for the church. That we're not praying for something that God is not interested in. We're not praying for something that God doesn't see of great value. When we pray for the church, we need to remember that God purchased the church by his own blood. Lastly, we see Nehemiah wrapping up his prayer here in verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Not only is Nehemiah here asking the Lord to hear his own prayer, but the expectation is that there will be others also praying for the restoration of the church in Jerusalem. As Nehemiah asks the Lord to be attentive to the prayer of his servants who desire to fear his name. It's important that Nehemiah even puts it this way, that not only is the expectation that other servants will be praying for the work to prosper, but Nehemiah understands that the Lord does hear, and the Lord is pleased to hear those who fear his name. And what fearing his name simply means is one who stands before God in reverence and awe, one who stands before God with an open and ready ear to hear his words and to tremble at them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is wisdom and fear related together? Well, because one who fears God is one who listens to God, one who gleans from all that God has to say in his word. And it makes sense then when we're talking about prayer that the Lord would be pleased to hear the prayers of those who fear his name. The simple logic is this. That if one is not willing to listen to God, he should never think that God is willing to listen to him. And so as we pray for the church, let us remember For ourselves to be people who fear the Lord God. To be a people who are attentively listening to God. How foolish we would be to think that we deserve a hearing from God in our prayers when we fail to hear from Him, from His whole counsel. So as we pray for the church, let us... Be those who pray from hearts that tremble before the Lord our God. 
Let us be a prayerful people who stand constantly in reverence and awe of the Lord God who has spoken to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the church that you have loved, that you have loved so dearly, to send your son to die for her, to purchase her by his own precious blood. We also thank you that in the life of Jesus Christ, we saw him pray for the church, that great high priestly prayer as he prayed for the church throughout all ages. Oh, what love the Savior had for the church and what love the Savior still has for the church as we are reminded in your word that he continues to make intercession for us. And so we thank you for the love that Jesus Christ has for the church and will always have for her. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us this same kind of love, that as we grow in our Christ-likeness, that we would grow in our yearning and our desire to have our love for the church materialize in prayer for her. And so, Lord, help us to be a prayerful people as part of the church. Help us to pray for the church to pray for faithfulness, to pray for repentance, to be open in confession of our sins, that you would forgive us of them and cleanse them from us. And Lord, that we would always recognize that it is a most wonderful privilege to come before you in prayer, the Lord of heaven, our great and awesome God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.